The scripture reading is taken from Genesis chapter 2. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, now no shrub had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant had yet sprung up, but the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no one to work the ground. But streams came up from the earth and watered the whole surface of the ground. Then the Lord God formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river watering the garden flowed from Eden. From there it was separated into four headwaters. The name of the first is the Pishon. It winds through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. The gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is the Gion. It winds through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is the Tigris. It runs through the east of Asher. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree in the garden. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Kimberly. Uh, since the summer, we have started a new sermon series. We're looking at the first book of the Bible, uh, Genesis, the origin. The word itself means origin or birth. Source, beginning. And by looking at Genesis, you essentially get all the themes that are going to unfold in the rest of the Bible. Everything that happens, happens because of what happens in Genesis. And so, to be grounded in Genesis, to understand the story, to be aware of the story, is key to being a Christian and understanding events in the world and what the Bible is talking about. But I should give you a warning. Genesis is controversial, widely misunderstood. People's opinions of it are often shaped not so much by the text, as we have just heard, but by things they've heard outside the Bible and by stories and by films and by books and cartoons. And so Christians continue to discuss these verses. In fact, our denomination right now is discussing them. And... And so I'm going to repeat a warning I've been giving you every time we look at this book. The Bible is primarily about Jesus Christ. He is the center of the Old and New Testament. Everything in the Old Testament points to him, and everything in the New Testament interprets the meaning of Jesus Christ's life and death and resurrection. He is the center of the Bible. He is what is the main point of the Bible. There are other things in the Bible which you can talk about, which you can debate, which Christians historically have had different opinions on. And that is true of the book of Genesis. Our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, the denomination that ordained me, is uh, fairly conservative theologically. And yet, 
pastors, ordained ministers are in the PCA have a range of views on some of these verses in Genesis. The reason I'm bringing that up is I, I would hate for our church to become divided over things that are not central to the Bible. There are many interesting ideas to explore here, things that people in this room will disagree about. But let's not make these ideas the source of controversy. Let's be able to, I hope, debate them without being divided from each other. So that's my warning. Let's look at this. And I'll tell you when we get to the speculative bits. I'm going to start in verse 4. We, we've looked in the last uh, few Sundays at creation. The way God creates all things in six days, gives structure to that that is formless, fills that which is empty, creates everything that is, including us, heaven and earth, every human being, every creature, every star, every planet, everything. But then he moves on. And here, in Genesis 2, you get a much more personal story of creation. So let's look at it, starting in uh, verse 4. This is the account of the heavens and the earth when they were created, when the Lord God made the heavens and earth. Notice there's a transition here. In chapter 1, in in describing the creation of heaven and earth, you get this majestic, um, broad picture creation of everything. But now the language shifts. Instead of the heavens and the earth, we get God made the earth and the heavens. It's becoming more specific. It is becoming more localized. And there's a change in God's name here. When the Lord God made the heavens and the earth, before in Genesis 1, the word used Elohim is a generic word for God. You might, the generic word for, you know, the creator of everything. The Lord God is Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, the personal name of God that was revealed to Moses in the burning bush. So everything is funneling down here from the big picture of the creation of everything and all things to a much more personal and specific act of creation. And now we have the personal God of Israel who is active. And no shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. The stage has been set, and creation waits for human beings, for man. For the apex of creation, the creation of us. It's a remarkable fact. Verse 7. The Lord God formed the man from the dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Once again, there is a change here. In Genesis 1, when God creates, he just says the word. Let there be light, there is light. 
Let there be earth and sky and water and uh, fish and birds and uh, shrubs and trees. God just says it. Let it happen. Let there be light. It happens. God's word has power and can create out of nothing. But with human beings, there's a change here. The Lord God formed the man. Formed is a Hebrew word, yasa, from which you get the Hebrew word pottery, and to make out of pottery. It has the sense of process. Just as a potter creates a vase or something, some object by drawing the form out of the clay, that's the idea for the creation of human beings. A progressive creation, a personal, hands-on creation of humanity as distinct, say, from stars and planets, as distinct from other animals, the, the fish and the, um, the birds and the animals of the ground. The creation of humanity has this progressive and this personal aspect. And there's a play on words here which is not completely obvious in English. Adam, the name of this creature that is formed, is actually the Hebrew word for earth or soil or dust. So Adam is not a name like uh, John or Paul that you would give to a person. It has the sense of earthling. Some other translations try to capture that by using the word God from the earth creature from the earth, or the human from the humus, which is not the best translation, but the human from the humus. But that's the sense in the Hebrew. The earth creature, the earthling from the earth, stressing the material nature of God's creation of human beings. And this idea of um, we are from the earth that we live in is conjured up in the Bible when it talks about death as returning to the dust, returning to the earth from which we were made. Or when people grieve and they repent in dust and ashes. Or the most cursed creature, the serpent, that is cursed to crawl on its belly in the dust of the earth. So you have this sense of personal creation, there is an exalted aspect to humanity, but there's also a humility. We are created from the dust, and the from to the dust we will return. What distinguishes us? What makes us different from everything else, from every other creature? The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of the life, and the man became a living being. This is the difference right here. The breath of God, the word is ruach. In Hebrew, spirit and breath are the same word. They have the same meaning. What makes us more than just dirt? God's spirit personally breathed in to each of us. That's why you have this sense, not just a generic giving, but to be have the Spirit breathed in to the nostrils, a per, personal intimate contact. 
And that is our significance. Without that spirit, we are just dirt. The presence of God's spirit in us is what distinguishes us from everything else. And so here you have the basic Christian anthropology. What is a human being? A human being is physical and material, like other creatures, like other animals, the same substance. However, a human being is different in one way and one way only. A human being has the Spirit of God. And therefore, humanity, human beings, have a spiritual nature and a physical material nature, and those together make a full human being. And of course we see that when we see Jesus. Born of the Holy Spirit, but born physically of a human mother. Spirit and flesh coming together. That is what true humanity looks like. And any account of hum human beings that leaves out the spirit is not going to be a full account. It's going to be a false account. All right, so that's standard Christianity I just gave it to you. No problem, right? So let's create a problem. Let's speculate. Now, why am I going to speculate right now? Well, as soon as I announced I was going to preach on Genesis, um, I got a question. Alexa came up to the front. Many of you know Alexa. Little girl, and she asked a question, which all Christians ask when they first read Genesis. Where did Cain's wife come from? Why is she asking this question? Because if you read the story, you have... Adam and Eve, and we're going to look at Eve next week. Adam and Eve come together, and they have children, Cain and Abel. And of course, notoriously, Cain kills Abel. And Cain is expelled from the garden. Um, but when he's expelled, he's terrified. And there are three interesting things that are said. He's terrified that if he's expelled, he's going to get killed by other people. Who are those other people? He gets married. Where does this woman come from? And he builds cities. Where do the people come from in Cain's cities? People have always wondered about that. Children ask about it. Everybody asks about it. The Bible does not give a specific answer. And so to answer or to think about that question, you have to speculate a little bit. And this is, of course, speculation is the source of a lot of trouble. So I'm going to give you three levels of speculation. All right? The first one I don't think is so bad, but some of you might. I don't know. First level of speculation. Where did Cain's wife come from? Um, one thing we know about the Bible is it is not a universal world history. It is very specific. It only talks about the family that is going to produce Jesus Christ doesn't talk about old people. There's nothing in there about Asia or South America or other things that have happened in world history. It is very narrowly focused on God's chosen people. And the people in the Bible are chosen. Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, the new Adam. 
It's a very specific group of people, and it's a very specific story. So what could you say about people who might exist outside the garden? They're just not part of this story. The reason they're not in the Bible is because the Bible is focused on the lineage, the story that is going to produce Jesus. And so the easiest explanation is to read these two verses, 7 and 8, as talking about a specific chosen person. Let me read it to you again so you understand what I mean. The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. He's talking about Adam. Could there have been other people formed? Well, notice, the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden, and there he put the man he had formed. So wherever Adam was formed, God took the man, Adam, the chosen man, and he put them specially in a garden, Eden. And that's where we get the rest of the story of the Garden of Eden from. Could there have been other people created at the same time? Could there have been a community of people or different kinds of people? The easiest and most direct explanation and the explanation I gave to Alexa was there could have been other people. Why would Cana be worried about getting killed outside the garden? How would he find a wife outside of the garden? Why would there be cities outside the garden unless there were other people? Now, the Bible does not say, apart from references to Cain, and that's why it's speculative. But I think we're invited to go at least that far. Now, some people have gone further. This is the debate within our denomination right now. This is more speculative. So we're stepping even further out on a limb here. We've just built a castle in the clouds, and now we're going to put a tower on that castle in the clouds. There is a difference, as I pointed out, between God's creation of human beings and God's creation of everything else. Everything else he just creates. It just happens. Human beings are formed. Yasa. A process. Now, what is that process? It's a process that turns dust into human beings. Dust of the ground becomes a living earthling, a living creature. Some people are willing to speculate that that sounds similar to evolution. Other people hear the word evolution and they scream and shout and try to fire their pastor. So please don't remember, we're on speculative ground here. A further step of speculation. We've built a castle in the clouds and we put a tower on it, and now we're going to put a big flag on that tower. All right? What if all those people outside the garden, what if you called them hominids? That is, not human beings in the sense that we know, but creatures, pre-human creatures. Then you begin to interact with the anthropology, the story of the creation, not the creation, but the evolution of human beings out of hominids. Um, I know at least one pastor who was fired for speculating about this, by the way, so that's dangerous ground. The only reason I'm bringing it up is you should be aware of the boundaries of the conversation right now within our denomination. 
And it's a personal thing with me. I love the Bible. I love reading about the Bible, and I love talking about the Bible. I would hate for us to be afraid to talk about the Bible and speculate about the Bible. So that's why I bring it up to you. Remember, we are not talking about biblical truth here. We're speculating. We're enjoying the story. We agree on the basics. And we are trying to draw out other threads as a way of thinking more deeply about the Bible. All right? So let's get rid of that cloud in the sky and the castle and the tower and the banner. And let's go back to what the Bible actually does say. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east, in Eden. And there he put the man he had formed. In the east, from the perspective of Israel, and remember the biblical story, it was given to Israel. From the, from the perspective of Israel, east is where the river is described in verse 9 through 14. The Euphrates and the Tigris are. The key point is that according to the Bible, the garden is not some mythical place. Some people try to explain away the Garden of Eden as some kind of mythical poem, mythopoetic realm, you know, something that isn't meant to impart truth other than historical truth. But the Bible here is locating all this action on earth in a specific place east of uh, Israel, between specific rivers, a place that God set apart, made holy for his relationship with these chosen people, Adam and Eve. And therefore, the story of the Garden of Eden, we need to take it literally. Whatever your speculations about Genesis, be very wary of people who want to turn it into a poem, people who want to turn it into mythology, people who want to take away for, from its specificity and its historical reality. God right here locates it in a time and a place in history, and therefore we should too. I'm going to skip over uh, verse 9 and 14 where it describes Eden. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The garden is not like the rest of the world. Remember, at the beginning, God creates heaven and earth. He creates the physical realm of earth, the material world. He also creates the spiritual realm, heaven. But in the garden, the two come together. There is a lovely place in Genesis 3 where it says, Then the man and his wife, he's talking about Adam and Eve, heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord called to the man, Where are you? When I was at seminary and we were reading this, the professor said, and of course, that's just poet, poetic license. That's, you know, it's a lovely image, but it's just poetry. I don't think it is. The garden is the holy place. It is separate from the earth, and it is separate from heaven. 
and it is where God and man are in a perfect relationship. And why wouldn't God want to enjoy his creation? And why wouldn't he show up in the cool of the morning, which is so beautiful, to spend time with his favorite creation, Adam and Eve? I would argue that that is the description of the way things are meant to be. And when we talk about restoring our relationship with God, that's the ultimate goal. The New Testament promises one day we will see our God face to face, that we will be with him forever. And I think this is a description of it. And that is the central idea of the Garden of Eden, a unique place between heaven and earth where the spiritual realm of God and the material realm come together. And we are in this perfect, wholesome relationship the way things are meant to be. But notice, you don't just sit around eating grapes and drinking wine and waiting for God to show up. God put Adam and Eve there to work. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work and to take care of it. To work, the sense is to till or to cultivate to draw out the potentials of God's creative creation. You know, this morning I had a cup of coffee, and um, I was thinking about this passage. If you've ever come across wild coffee, it's nasty. The coffee that we drink is the result of centuries of cultivation. Human beings have refined coffee until it's, for many people, the favorite drink of the day. The same with wine. The same with strawberries. If you've ever seen wild strawberries, they are sad little things. The strawberries that we get are the result of human beings drawing out the potential, cultivating what God put into the world. And that's what we are expected to do. No shrub of the field had yet appeared on the earth, and no plant of the field had yet sprung up. For the Lord God had not sent rain on the earth, and there was no man to work the ground. Our job, if you are thinking about your personal call, why you are here, needs to be grounded in this. Your job, my job, our job, is to draw out of the created order all the potentials, all the possibilities, all the inherent richness that God put in his creation. In a sense, we are the secondary creation, drawing out the riches of the first. And that's what our life should be about. And to take care of it. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to take care of it. The word here uh, for take care is the Hebrew word samar. It means to guard, it means to protect. It even has a sense of worship. It is the word used of priests who are working in the temple at Jerusalem. Our job is not to exploit the world. Our, not, our job is not to use it for our own purposes. Our job is to cultivate it, to draw out the richness to glorify God. And to protect and guard and take care of that which God has given us so freely.
Now, of course, this is controversial too right now. This summer, I went on a retreat and uh, I read a document by the current Pope, Pope Francis. Laudatario Si, in glory of you. A very long document, I think 170 pages. But I would highly recommend chapter 2, The Gospel of Creation, where Francis draws together everything the Bible has to say about the relationship of God and man and creation, and the inner relationship between the two and the purposes and the proper relationships. It's a beautiful document. And basically he says, God gives us the earth to glorify not only ourselves but him. That cultivating the earth, cultivating the world, cultivating ourselves is our act of worship. It's the purpose for which we are here. I'm going to summarize now, because we are moving towards a congregational meeting today. But take these three things. You're not an accident. No matter what the world says to you, there is a reason that God created you personally and breathed his spirit into you personally. You have a purpose, a call, a reason that is transcendent that is divine. You are a material, mundane creature, yes, but you're also a divine creature. Your spiritual nature proves it. And therefore your life has meaning. And every moment of your life is important. You are physical and you are spiritual. Together they make you a human being. You shouldn't focus on one rather than the other. Holistically, we should be about growing physically, but we should be about growing spiritually as well. And in human life, there is no distinction. They're united together as one. Every moment, everything that you do is both a physical act, but also a spiritual act. And every relationship, and every member of your family, and every meal together, and everything, every moment can be and should be an act of worship. You are called. You are called into existence. And that means there is a divine job for you to do. There is something in this world that requires you alone. There is some aspect of creation that will not glorify God unless you get about doing it. There is no such thing as sort of a universal call in the Bible. God always chooses people specifically and uniquely. He creates them specifically and uniquely, and he gives every one of us a specific and unique purpose, call, reason to be alive. And so we, as a church, should be about the business of helping each other discover that call, nurturing each other's call, clarifying it, supporting it. You know, we just sent Yukiko to Japan. That is a perfect example of how a church community supports its members finding their purpose and call. 
We should be doing that with everybody. And when you come to church, recognize you're not here to consume what is happening. You are what is happening. The renewing of your spirit with your body and the blossoming of your life is the reason that we're here. We are unique. We have a purpose. And we are beloved. Creation is a gift. The gift of life to each of us. The gift of each other. The gift of this beautiful world which we are invited to work in and cultivate. It's all a gift. And therefore, the proper response is thankful, grateful, continual worship. And as your life becomes more worshipful, as you become more thankful, you will see that side of creation revealed more and more. Because it's the way things are. And as we align ourselves truly with the way things are, our lives become more integrated, and we see more clearly and more deeply. We are not accidents. We have a purpose, and God loves us forever. That's the message. That's what we need to hold on to and cultivate together as a church. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for the gift of life. We thank you that you have given us everything that we are, everything that we have, freely and completely. Lord, show us how to live lives based on that truth. Show us how to cultivate the world around us and cultivate each other. Show us, Lord, how to do your work in the world, how to claim your spirit and power, how to live out a relationship with you. Lord, show us what it means to be Christ-like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.